0: Hey guys, welcome to Rebuilding the Beast. I'm your host NBA Champ Fester Cezili, and on this podcast, we're going to be sharing a lot of inspiring stories of people just like you who have shown that adversity is not the end. You can be successful, you can be happy again, you can have what you want from life, and thrive after great adversities. I hope you can take the tips and lessons from these stories and apply it to your life as well. Welcome to Rebuilding the Beast. The story of Kelsey Brass, I have not been fully able to comprehend yet because she is an absolute beast. She's a Canadian combat veteran. At age 19, she was deployed to fight in the war in Afghanistan. Now, this podcast episode goes through the story of her training at age 18, going to the military with no previous background, learning to hate the people of Afghanistan to go fight in this war, what it looked like when she went to Afghanistan, the good things and the bad things of the military. Wow, there's so much to talk about, but the most amazing part of this podcast is the recovery after a traumatic brain injury. She had PTSD after she was released from the army. One example is that she attacked a couple at Walmart because she felt like they were out to get her. She goes through very, very candidly and explains what her journey was like. Now her recovery was incredible because through therapy and different modalities we even talk about psychedelics we talk about meditation art therapy all the things but art therapy which was the most unlikely she'll tell you that was the thing that saved her and helped her get to the company that she has created now she's the ceo of brass and unity now this company is donating to other veterans she gave a number of how many suicides are committed every day and she wants to stop that because she understands So her journey to even creating this company is incredible. But I hope that from this podcast, you can get more empathy. You can understand what it is the veterans go through. And I hope that you can share this podcast because there's tools here that can help other people who are going through the same thing. All right, without much further ado, here we go. Rebuilding Kelsey Brass.
1: Welcome to Rebuilding the Beast. Welcome to the show. I appreciate you so much, Kelsey. How you doing today?
2: I'm so good, I oh, God, that's the best intro. That's the best one I've got yet. <laughs>
1: Thank um, you
2: for having me.
1: Yes. Shout out to um, Neil and Ruvay for connecting us as well. So we got to give them a shout out. Um, I can't wait to hear yes. your story. It's it's kind of the same to all the things you've gone through. I want to start from the beginning. You were born in Canada. Okay. What was life like for you at a young age? Uh, sheesh, I can't speak today. What was life like for you right. as a young girl? Was there peace before the storm?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I had always had a really good childhood. I mean, my for most people, when I look back at my life, uh, I think I had a childhood that I was fortunate enough to have uh, manufactured adversity, if you will, in some aspects. So I was given it was it wasn't a super easy in terms of my parents made me do things. I I grew up very fortunately in the middle of the woods where we got to cut and split wood. I got to be outside all of the time. I got to be around, uh, a family that really was hardworking from the get-go. And I've always known them as, as parents that were hard on me, but hard on me for a reason. And so I had it really good. Um, I had a, a little bit of a different childhood in the sense of my parents are long haul truck drivers. Uh, my mom stayed at home with us. My dad was gone. And because of that, my mom was really smart in that she really realized how important sports would be in developing a child and what the importance were of being a teammate and um, also understanding individual sports as well and what that could bring and build character as, as an adult. So my mom put me in Taekwondo when I was four and uh, soccer and then my brother as well. And it really, for me, my entire childhood was built around being a uh, an athlete in Taekwondo. So I, I started fighting at the age of four and I didn't stop till later on in my life. And, um, my parents did a great job from that sense. They, they, like I said, they grew up in a very different time with uh different type of rules. My dad had, you know, like I think it was like the seven brothers and sisters, the baby of them all, and yeah. you know, grew up on the farm and like that, that old school way of thinking where it's like we never got beat, but we got threatened with the belt. Yeah. Like it was the full on. <laughs> um, but yeah, so my childhood was great. Um, up until about 12, 13, Uh, I went through something there with my coaches and my my trainers and um Subsequently, my my coach made a real bad life decision and decided he would have a um a sexual relationship with a younger member of our school. And my coach went to prison or jail, whatever you want to debate it is. He went away. Um and I lost a lot of trust and a lot of faith in humanity and people around that time with having somebody who was so important to my development and had been around me for such a I mean, four to uh, 12, 13. I mean, I was there every day, every single day, sometimes twice a day, sometimes three times a day on weekends. I, all I could do was eat, sleep and breathe, you know, the rings. And when you, when you're younger and you see people going to the Olympics and you are young enough to go, huh, if I work hard enough, if I put enough effort in, maybe one day I can get myself there. And I was really that young and I was, I really wanted that. That was the end goal for me. Um I really pushed towards being the best athlete I could be possible. And so when I lost, uh, when that happened, I lost a lot of faith and I lost a lot of trust. And I think that's when really the, the storm, as you say, or the anger that started to bubble underneath, it really began to really take hold and really start to shape who I was and maybe my reactions to things or my choices I was making. There was a lot of hurt in there that I never really knew how to deal with. So for me up until um up until I end up going into high school and uh, stopped fighting and I started taking rugby really seriously that's when I you know I just was a very dark felt like angry individual as I'm sitting here in a pink sweater today.
1: I I do like the I like the choice of the pink sweater. It actually mm-hmm. shows that you have rebuilt the beast in some way so we want to get know how you got to that point. So at 18 yeah. You made the decision to join the military. What brought you to that position?
2: Yeah. The weirdest situation of all time, like most <laughs> most great choices in life. I met a lady on a bus.
1: Mm. Um
2: coming. Yeah, I mean, why not? Right? Why not Very like have that moment? Lady. Yeah. I, I mean, listen, she was legit. She um I was coming back from a remembrance day ceremony, which is uh, Veterans Day for the American listeners. It's November eleventh. And I was I always go to the ceremonies in Ottawa when I was living there or wherever we were close in our town, wherever the, uh, I guess, wherever, um, the Legion was having it, you would go to the ceremony on the 11th. You would do it during school. We always had a really big, um, we always had really big conversation around that time about veterans and uh, not even mental health, but veterans and what they did for us and and everything like that. And then after nine 11, there was a different conversation being had around remembrance day. And you, you started to realize that it was a different time in the way that we looked at our military. I came back from the ceremony and this lady was sitting there in her uniform. She was, she was elderly. So she, I don't know exactly what war because we never really got into it. She had a chest full of metals. Um, she looked like she was air force. And I just remember sitting down and talking to her for a little bit, for whatever reason, whether it's coincidence, whatever you want to call it, that stuck with me and it, it affected me. It affected me in a way that it, it literally was that moment I can look back when you're connecting dots and go that right there was a turning point in my life where I went to college in Ottawa just because I wanted to get out of the small town that I was growing up in. I, I went through a bad breakup in high school. I did the whole you know, the thing you do when you're younger where you're just like, I need to get out of this town. Just get me out. So I went to the closest college that would take me in Ottawa, and then I ran into this lady. And she really gave me what I thought was a sense of purpose. So I, I went and I joined the military and that was November. I ended up swearing in that year and I was off to basic training that in January. So within a couple short months, we were told because we were, you know, during an active war that was deploying on a regular rotation basis, there would be a chance you'd be deploying. And if you went for any specific job, you would for sure be deploying. It's just a matter of time. So I picked one of those jobs because at the time, you know, I was young enough to kind of go, we're fighting in a war and I can wrap my head around while we're fighting in this. And I feel like I could go do something to help people. And whether that's because I was naive or whether that's because I was young or whether that's because at the time, the information I was being fed via the news or whatever made me feel some type of way about this war. And so I I joined, I went to basic training. Um, right after basic training, I got posted to the next, uh, next unit, which was my SQ and DP one. So that's where you, you go from basic training and what that is for your listeners is if you're not sure it's you go, you get yelled at, you learn how to march, you learn how to hold the gun. You learn how to wear the uniform and you learn the basics of the military code and what you do and do who you salute to who you don't, you know, those types of things. Then you start to learn about warfare and, and, you know, the whole walk in, we walk into the gas chambers and we do the whole, take your mask off, inhale the gas. Now put your mask back on for four hours and vomit in it and just survive. So there's, there's things you do in basic training that are really hilarious now when you look back, but. They're to teach you a lesson so that when you're on a deployment, if they call gas, 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 you understand that you have to go full mop gear and 55 degree heat until they clear and say that there's no more chemical weapons. So you learn these things in that first, like 12, 13 weeks. After that, you go to your next training and depending on what it is, I'm Canadian. So we don't do it the same as America. So I'm sorry if I can't speak to exactly what the American military do. I don't have experience with that.
1: Story. We did
2: S. Yeah. I always say that though, because I do, we do have a lot of listeners on my show that are American and they're like, that's not how we do it. And I was like, I'm from Canada. We do it differently. So, you know, there's, <laughs> I'm, I always try to keep but it anyway, clear. So and SQ and DP one, you learn everything from your, you know, your uh, Carl Gustavs, which your uh, grenade launchers, you know, big over the shoulder, boom, blow up the tanks with to the hand grenades to the C sevens, which are your personal rifle. I think in America, M 16s, and then you learn your machine guns and you learn all your tactical warfare around that. After that, you go on to your, your trade specific training, which is for me was artillery. So I shot an M triple seven, which is a one five, five millimeter howitzer with around just under hundred pounds per round. And it takes a few people to run this thing. Yeah. It was a good time. Yeah. It's a great weapon. It's, it's amazing. I, I'll send you a video offline of me firing. <laughs> it's so funny, but, um, it was, one of the, it was one of the things I wanted to do when I joined the military, right? So it was uh, an honor to get to go do that. So once I did that, I got posted to my unit in Vakitse, Quebec, which is a province in, in, on, in Canada that speaks French. And I got posted to that unit. And then I deployed with that unit in April of 2009 to Afghanistan.
1: When I hear you say this story, you say it so matter of fact. And each thing you say is <laughs> hitting me like, wait, you have to shoot. You have to do this. You have to do this. So you got to tell me when you get here, is it so, is it just normal for you at this point? Are you trained in handling mm-hmm. weapons? Are you trained to handle gas and putting your mask on for four hours? Like as you, as a kid, you're 18 years old when you're deployed mm-hmm. or you're, when you go into the military, sorry, you're 18 years old. What are you going through? What's going through your mind? Are you having hard days? Is the, is the training hard for you? Do you want to quit? What what's what's happening for you at this point?
2: So for basic training, for me, it was a really interesting thing because I, had done Taekwondo for so long, I had developed a this mentality that I'm so fortunate that my mom gave me. Again, this comes from a, her dad was, you know, escaped the Nazis in World War II once the Soviets came into Hungary. So there was a mentality that was bred into, mm. there is a mentality that is bred into immigrants. I don't give a shit what you say, part of my language, but it's true. We We come from a different type of, cut from a different cloth. And so whether that's a good thing always or a bad thing, my mother had the mentality of, we don't say, can't, we don't quit something. If we start it, we finish it. That's the end of the conversation. It doesn't go further. So because of that, I was really I had good, positive self-talk early on. So getting into basic for the, for the most part, I was like, okay, yeah, you could, okay. I can do this. Like, it's okay. We're going to go for a 10k run. Okay. It's really cold. You'll figure it out. It'll be fine. Your legs will keep moving. They don't give out. It'll be fine. So I had that already. And I had that push past the hard point. You know, I knew that my mind could make my body go. And so I wasn't worried about that. I did have a moment in basic training, though, where the yelling overtook for me. And I had a physical reaction where I started hyperventilating. Didn't know why. We were just being screamed at so much and it was so like hectic and everyone, if somebody messes up the whole unit pays,
1: somebody doesn't wake
2: up on time. We all pay. It's like team, teamwork, teamwork, Mm. teamwork. Um, You are, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. That's just it. And so it, it got overwhelming. And I remember my, one of my, uh, my Bombardier chefs, so master Bombardiers pulled me around, And he goes in his very thick accent, hey, listen, Burns, listen here. Yeah. Come here. Listen, listen, listen. This is just a game. Yeah. It's just a game. We're just yelling to ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. We're just seeing how you react. No, don't worry about it. He's like, at this point, when you join the military for a career, they don't yell at you 24-7, right? This is, we want to break you down. We want to affect you mentally. Let's see how you overcome it and how you handle it. Once he told me that light switch. All right, we're playing a game now. Okay. I can do this. And then I started focusing, focusing on myself on how do I be the best soldier I can be? How do I march the best? How do I learn the best? How do I fitness wise? How do I do more pushups? How do I do more sit-ups? How do I do more pull-ups? How do I compete with the next, the next? And so once I did that, I could get my brain into it up to that point though. It was a little, what did I do? Why did I do this? And who did I do this for? Kind of situation, yeah. Okay. So it was a little different.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so in knowing some of your story, I also understand that you got deployed at 19. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's so a I whole was uh, different yeah. ball game.
2: Yeah, that's how, uh, we're playing for keeps now.
1: So maybe tell me, how does that training then prepare you to get to the point where you're you're shooting at people? right now it's where you're deployable yes
2: yeah um i think at the at the end of the day we have to remember when we're talking about things like deployments and and shooting at people there's you know i i talk about it in a certain way because i i've gone through up recently i've gone through a transition point where in my healing i finally got to the point where i no longer see all of the people of Afghanistan as the enemy, right? It took me a long time to deprogram that. Um, You really do get programmed that where you're going, every single person could be someone that will shoot you. Uh, Because in Afghanistan, it wasn't like we were dealing, you got to understand, it's not like it's World War II where the Nazis wore uniforms. We were in a country where everyone could be shooting at you and anyone could be shooting at you and they could be dressed just like a civilian. And that's why the Taliban were so successful in Iraq. That's why they were so successful in, in, in plenty of places, um, because they can hide amongst the civilian population really, really well. So you were trained to just not hate, but like this, this is who you're here to fight against. And so I say that because I was really young and impressionable and I didn't know any better Because I was young enough to believe everything I was being told. And at that time, I didn't understand the the landscape of Afghanistan. I didn't understand the culture and the customs. I didn't understand what was going on over there to really make a judgment other than if you look like that, you sketch me out. And there's probably a reason why. So that mentality kept me alive. That keeps many people alive when you're on alert all that time, that fight or flight mentality. Mm -hmm. So we deployed in, uh, I deployed when I was 19. So I just turned 19 in September. We deployed it in the following April and we went, um, as the Canadian artillery, we end up getting posted out to a FOB, an American FOB, which is called a uh, forward observation base, which is outside the main, the main hub where you would fly into called CAF in Kandahar. That's where everyone flies into for the most part into Afghanistan. That's where all of the major comms come out of. That's where there's a Tim Hortons there. Wow. If that helps you, okay. there's a subway there. There's like a pizza hut there. There's ball hockey outside. So CAF is kind of where you fly in and out of. That's where you go once you come into country and then you disperse from there. So uh, we didn't stay there. We went and got attached to an American forward observation base outside the FOB. I mean, outside of outside of CAF, we went out to that FOB. We were the only Canadians running the M777, so the artillery guns out there, and we were supporting an American um, American units out there. The rest of the Canadians that, that deployed with us from my regiment, there was two other units. And those two went to Canadian FOBs, supporting Canadian and British, kind of, depending on where they were placed, that's where they went. And so I got a unique experience getting the chance to work and see and watch how Americans, you know, operate, which was a very different thing than how Canadians and how the British and how everyone does everything. Every country's military is very different. So I was very fortunate. I got to spend a lot of time with Americans there. Um, When we went to faber Ramrod, we settled in, but soon after we got there, it wasn't too long before, I think it was like a month and a half before they said that I needed to go with the British military somewhere, that I was being called to go this isn't like a call by God. Hold on. <laughs> Let me correct no. this. I was being called, uh, called up because they needed female attachments. So that meant an infantry unit was going to go outside the wire on a foot patrol for a week. And they needed a female who could search the women and children to go with them. Mm. So th- I got picked is me a, and a couple it, other is this people.
1: Promotions. What was what this? No, mean?
2: It means, hey, they think you can handle yourself enough to go and not mess up. So we're, they need you're gonna go,
1: yeah. Yes, um, maybe give a. Is there like a timeline? What, what year is this? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe that could. Also this is two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Yes. So
2: it, yeah. So when what, we got to Afghanistan, it was April of two thousand nine, and that was. When you look at fighting seasons, meaning when the enemy's more active, you look at the summertime in Afghanistan. Summertime is when there's lots popping, a lot popping uh, because they're growing the opium around that time frame and the fields are blooming and that's when they're collecting and that's how you pay for a lot of things and the Taliban come in. It's, it's a whole there's a whole different dynamic on fighting seasons around different times of the year and where we were and where I was going was a stronghold of the Taliban. Mm. And so what had happened was we were sitting at the fob and we were providing artillery fire from April until I went with the British. So we were on the fob. We didn't leave and you stay there and you have to man um, a OP tower. So there's different posts, like you'll have a big round, whatever the fob looks like, the walls. Okay. You'll have your walls. And then there'll be towers on each kind of corner. So everything's covered 360. So there's always eyes on the perimeter all the time. We had to cover ours. So we would do four-hour shifts every day. Uh, and we would be up there watching, always just watching, and having a machine gun at the ready. And then We would get fire missions that would come from infantry units that are outside the wire, outside of that fob, that were in a 40-kilometer distance from us. And they would call us if they needed support. And then we, meaning my artillery group, my two guns, our sergeants would call, and we would all have to, except if you're on the tower, you would have to run to the gun and get ready to fire artillery over top of the units that need you or near them or wherever the fire is being called and somebody from the front lines who was up there or near would call back to the radio and give us coordinates and we would work those on the guns load the rounds and wait for us to start firing and then we would get the call and there'd be about like five to seven of us running these guns one gun at a time yeah and that could come 24 7 and it could go as long as it wants. It, like, it depends on what they need from you. So we went days where we didn't have any firing. And then we went days where we were firing all day long. So it just depended on what was needed of you at the time.
1: When you're talking about firing and you're talking about the action part of this, I, I don't know what you can talk about, what you can't talk about, but did it always feel like you were on, hmm, how do I ask this question? Like, do you always feel like you were doing your mission, the good job, the good work? How how did that whole thing work out for you in your head as you are out there and you're fighting against the enemy?
2: How do you justify dropping bombs on people, you mean? Yeah, I also
1: kind of want to know how are you programmed to hate, like, hate other people?
2: Yeah, it's a really, I mean, I wish I was... Uh, I- are some people i could introduce you to that would help you understand that very easily they're all mm. people that work for three letter alphabets or they they've all been in the service long enough to understand but mm. there's a there's a mentality when you're looking at warfare right there's um you know we went into Iraq under false pretenses uh under the idea that you know that was the answer to 9/11 we went into Afghanistan with motives and and wants and desires that, you know, that are way above my pay grade. And when I went in, all I knew was Americans were coming back in body bags and Canadians started to come back in caskets. So all I remember, I I remember I was in high school uh, not in high school yet. I was, this is going to date me. So just sorry for this. I was 11 when 9-11 happened. And I remember it just like everyone else. And I remember a couple days after that, when we were at school, we we did a ceremony at the school and I remember writing a poem and it's hilarious that I even can remember this, but I wrote a poem about it and I couldn't understand what had happened and no one could at the time. But it's insane to think back about that and realize how much of an impact it had on my life before I even realized it would have an impact on my life. I knew once we started hearing on the news about you know who we thought the pilots were, who we th- why they thought this was happening. Um, I never thought about it much after that until I think around 2007. 2006 and seven, when Canadians started, uh, started fighting less of a, as a UN, but more as an ISAF, which was, uh, it, 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 it fall you fall under a different Geneva, uh, Geneva convention. So it's basically like, if you're being shot at, you can now shoot back when you're at United nations, you're there for a peacekeeping mission. It's like Rwanda when, when Rwanda, when, when Rwanda happened, Canada was there at the time, I believe as United nations. So during a genocide, you you can't. It, you can't shoot. Like it's a different, it's a different thing. We were now fighting and we were taking the fight to the enemy. So I believed in my mind at that time that these people were out to hurt my countrymen and my people. And I believed, and I still do. And I still, and I'll stand by this stance and it's, it's accurate since the pullout of Afghanistan last year, They have gone backwards like I have never seen. Women can't even leave their homes anymore. We had kids in schools. We had women in schools. My buddy's company, Combat Flip-Flops, they had taught literacy to 800 girls during that war. There's people that have done good things that have got women rights over there. A ton of good things. But we do a bad thing when we go into countries and try to impose change on them when they want nothing to do with it. And we wonder why hearts and minds don't work. It's the way we start with hearts and minds. So it's it's hard because part of me has that sense of you've killed my friends and I've seen you do it. And so I'll always have that part of me. But then the healing and the the difference I am now in understanding why the war was happening and understanding what it really was and the damage it does to society and all of that. That's a different part of me. I didn't know then. So then I believed I was doing the right thing. I believed that I was supporting those Americans. I was supporting those Canadians and we were there to help the women and kids. Simple as that. My mission when I was out, when I was there was to help the people that were needing artillery fire. And then when I was on the ground with the British My mission was to check and search the women and children and make sure those girls were okay. So that's why I had no qualms. And when you see someone die or you lose a friend to a war like that or an enemy like that, you become a really angry person and you become a really hateful person. So it's not that I could justify it. It's that at that time in that moment, it's you or me or my friends or you. And I will pick my friends over you all day long.
1: It sounds like you were able to come out of the matrix a little bit and you were able to Mm -hmm. see both sides. Some. What was that change for you? Or what is there a particular moment? Was there something that happened?
2: Yeah. So I, I've been pretty open. I'm a Real open book about my journey into healing, and because it's not linear, I I work on it every every day. Mm -hmm. Um, there was an operation that happened in Afghanistan when I was with the British that really really did me in, really cracked and really broke the psyche there, and um, it was an experience that actually the anniversary is uh well today is D Day, June sixth. It is D Day today, so. That's, you know, a huge point in history that I, I I take time to reflect back on because if it didn't happen, I wouldn't be in existence. But on June 11th, that's a day in, in my life that'll be the moment I'll never forget for the rest of my existence that really did me in. So it's coming up on, it's that time of year for me. We all, all of my friends and my community have those days in the year. Um, and it's not that we've all left it behind or kind of started to realize, you know, that maybe that war was, wasn't right. It's that the way we left Afghanistan and how we left those people and all of that, that was a moment for me when I was given an opportunity to, I was very fortunate. I was given an opportunity to help an Afghan family get out of the country. And The only reason I was given that opportunity was because, and I spoke to you about this before, was a friend of mine came on my podcast, uh, Matthew Griffin. He's the founder of, um, of combat flip-flops. He's an army ranger. And, um, he called me and gave me an opportunity to help a Canadian, like people that needed to come to Canada that he couldn't help. And he said, you know, help them at the time. I had no way of helping them, but he came into my life when I was really struggling and gave me the opportunity of going to um, a retreat with Heroic Hearts Project, which is an ayahuasca retreat that I went and did um, because of him. And so, when he calls, anytime he calls since that ayahuasca retreat that helped save my life and put me on the right path and give me faith again and give me purpose again and open my eyes and change the way I see the world, it helped me change the understanding of hu- what humanity is, what people are how I can help them, how I can change the way I was, the way I am now. And so when I started having, when I had that experience with psychedelics, it was so transformative. It was so impactful. It was so healing in my life that I, when he then came to me in that like August of last year and said, Hey, you need to help these people. I was able to look past myself and see that these were people just like me, like my son, like anybody else that were being hunted, that were being harmed and that were being hurt for no other reason other than they were trying to give people freedom during the war. And so I got that opportunity and we were able to be successful in that. And we were able to get them to Canada and to the United States safely And we were able to help somebody from that country, including a bunch of women who would have been probably younger girls when I was in the country and to know that I was once in that country and could have, and probably you never know, could have met with them, could have been searching them, could have been somebody in their lives. All they knew is I was a a soldier on the other other end of a phone that was trying to get them out of the country. They didn't have a reason to trust me. They didn't know me. They just got my phone number. And they said, trust this person. And I was given that gift. So because of that, though, I've been able to, and since Ayahuasca, and because of that, I've been able to close a chapter on Afghanistan in a way that I never thought was going to be possible for me.
1: Tell me more about that. Tell me about, because I I do know that when people come back from war, it's it's really hard to have a peaceful mind. I remember having a, a conversation with some of the guys from SEAL Team 6. And if people don't know who those oh, they are, they're the really the some of the big dogs here in America that did some really. I don't really know. Like it's seems like one of them's a good things.
2: body of mine. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so, a couple yeah. of them I can't remember their names right now, but they came to speak to us here, and you know, in talking to them about their life after war yeah. and their life after being deployed, it's insane, and they don't yeah. see. It doesn't seem like they're able to to be still or for their minds to come back down to reality and be amongst the people and be peaceful. Um, for you, what was that journey like before you got to the Ayahuasca journeys?
2: Yeah, I, that's a, that's a great question. You're right. There are, I'm, I'm so, I'm so glad that you've gotten to hear some of those guys speak. Uh, one of them, One of the SEAL Team 6 members, Marcus Capone, runs an organization called Vet Solutions, which helps uh, veterans with psychedelics and and getting them treatment. Same with Heroic Hearts with Jesse Gould. He's a other special ops guy. Mm. Um, These guys, you're you're right. There is uh, When you come through and you're transitioning out, it's one of the hardest times in someone's life, mainly because, number one, they're probably struggling with something that they've seen, done, or witnessed and been a part of or they have been in for so long and that's their career and they don't know how to act any other way. And whether people realize it or not, sometimes some of the stuff that veterans say, we say out of dark humor, we don't say for effect. We say, because it's, it's real dark and it makes other vets laugh. And we say it because humor is a way to heal. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, So we have our moments of being difficult to be around for sure. And our habits are maybe a little out there, but for me, when I got home, it was a really difficult transition. I, because of that operation with the British, I ended up going home to the hospital early, uh, earlier than my unit. And I got posted to the area where I would be near the hospital. And I was then told that I would be, uh, getting medically retired from the military. So it wasn't my choice to leave. I was medically enabled to continue doing my job and I was medically retired with the three B honorable discharge in, uh, may of two, may 23rd, uh, 2011. Once that point happened, I, I remember the moment that my light switch turned off in my mind and it was June 11th, 2009. And from that moment on to the getting out of the military to the first handful of years out of the military, I was incredibly numb, suicidal, angry, agitated, difficult to be around, horrific nightmares, all the traditional things that happens when you've just, it's, your brain has not seen good things. And for me, it didn't take much. I know people who have been in for 25 years and they're fine, but they're, you know, They they didn't get kicked out of the military because their brain cracked. Mine did. I got no issue talking about that. People people have a hard time talking about PTS and they say, Well, there's this understanding, well, that you're weak or you're soft or you, you know, you just couldn't hack it. It's nothing to do with that. It's psychological. It's when your brain sometimes sees horrific things, you can't you can't choose how it reacts. You don't get to pick your tree. It's, just, it's, a, it's a, ha ha. Great. I love seeing this. I love seeing body peace. Like what no one expects to see that in their lifetime. So how can you prepare fully for that? And so for me, I, I struggled with, and I still struggle with my mental health daily. My God, it's, a. Uh, they, they put me on 10 different pharmaceutical drugs. Once I was in Afghanistan, I was on those for a decade. Uh,
1: yeah, to To be able to go, you need those.
2: No, no. Afterwards, after I got hurt, once I got hurt, once that operation happened, I went to the doctor in Afghanistan and they put me on medication right away. They, the, the military is known for over-medicating. It is like the hallmark of the VA system. It's what they do. We are really great usable sources for pharmaceutical companies. They love that. Yeah. It's, it's like athletes with injuries, people who need those shots, people who need pain meds, people who need perks, people who need Vicodin, people who need this and that we're no different. We're just more of the antidepressant, antipsychotic. We go down that route of meds that they really love to hammer people with. What does that, Um, what does
1: that, what does that line look like when you get, when you, when you crack, like you say, your brain cracked, what does that line look like? What, from normal to brain cracking. What is that? What what do you feel? What are you seeing? What are you going through?
2: What was my body like? Yeah. It's so different and it's so individualized on the person and, and really what happens. I know some guys where seeing a body or anything like that, they're like, it's fine. But I know some guys that if a balloon pops near them, they are not fine. So it's, it's really different for each person. For me, it was I do remember though it, because somebody put their hand on my shoulder and I was in this moment where if you just picture for a second, if you were to plug your ears like this and you were to have someone talk to you in slow motion, um, that's what it felt like it happened. And all of a sudden part of my brain just said, bye. And a wall went down and I couldn't feel anything anymore. All I felt was anger. I no longer was feeling like emotional. I was now like a light switch was like off and the other one flicked on and it was like stuck in fight or flight. And that was it. I had no emotion up to that point when I was clearing houses. When we would get to women and kids, I was really empathetic. Like the kids would be crying, of course. I mean, we just kicked your door in, you know, God knows what hour it's, it's a terrifying experience to see soldiers running into your house. I can't imagine being on the other side of it as a mom now. Oh God, no, I'd be combative. I can understand why they were fighting me. Right. It's horrific. Um, I would have girls up against the wall in the duck position while you're searching them. That would just be bawling their eyes out. I'd have some that were chewing some plants that would cause them to be intoxicated and they were a mess. So people were dealing with it. In their own ways, they were having their doors kicked in on a regular basis. So I had empathy at that time. And then something happened on that operation and it all went away. And I no longer had empathy for anyone. I didn't feel anything when the kids cried. I didn't feel anything when the mom would come at me with scissors. I didn't feel anything. I knew if you looked at me, you were going to get whatever you got. And I knew if we were going to shoot back at somebody, let's go. Let's go. You just took somebody that I watched disappear off the face of the earth. Let's go. It's a different mentality at that point. Something changes in you.
1: So you talked about, does. no, I, I can, I can't even imagine what it is that you went through at that point. So you get out of the military and you get diagnosed with PTSD. And so you get released Mm -hmm. from the military. Now take me through therapy and what you're doing to heal yourself. You talked about ayahuasca. Um, I think Mm -hmm. we talked about meditation at some point in our Mm -hmm. conversation. Uh, What are the different things that you did and how did you react to the different uh, modalities?
2: Yeah. So for me, it, it was, a, it's been a journey and I'm finally at a point where I'm starting to understand what I need and I'm still looking for different types of healing modalities, but initially we were heavily medicating, uh, and we are, we're heavily medicating vets. So that's a harder thing to move through because you're looking at constantly changing meds, uh, changing, uh, dosages, learning behaviors and then realizing maybe, okay, that doesn't work and doing all of that. So for the first handful of years out of the military, I would say up until 2015, it was just straight pharmaceutical medication and talk therapy, EMDR. It was, um, exposure therapy, those types of things we were doing and they weren't helping me progress. I was still sticking in a, in a certain level of of trauma that I couldn't break past. What had happened is I, One of my, my doctors suggested to me, uh, cannabis number one and art therapy cannabis was because I knew I couldn't be on that level of pharmaceutical medication. If I wanted to ever become pregnant safely, it just, it was not a good idea. Um, and at that time, cannabis was really making its way in Canada under the medical. And we were becoming legalized soon and that whole conversation started happening. So resources were available for me to start learning about cannabis Cannabis helped me wean off of pharmaceutical medication and gave me a plant-based healing modality that I, I didn't need. If I missed it, I didn't have, you know, withdrawals. If I missed it, I, I didn't, I wasn't groggy that morning, or if I wasn't taking those, I was remembering conversations I was having because it was so damaging to my body. I would have an argument with my husband or my fiance at the time at night, Go to sleep, and he'd be like. Do you not remember anything we talked about? I'm like, nope.
1: And this is the from medications. The, were so from the medications that you had at yeah. the time. And then, yeah. You know, P.S. Before you even get into all the healing models, I remember yeah. you telling me something about like trying to integrate into regular society, and like you couldn't even be outside. You can't go outside. You couldn't work. You attacked somebody at the grocery yeah. store or something like. Can you talk about that too?
2: Yeah. So it. I I had moments definitely when. When I got out of the military, where I was great, I was awesome. We went to Europe. I was great in that until somebody would get in my face or say something to me or look a certain way. That's when things would switch and the light switch would go. So when I was the thing you're speaking of was when I was in Ottawa and I got sent there, my mom and I were in a Walmart and we were just getting stuff from new place. And there was a family woman was dressed in a burqa and a husband just dressed in normal clothes, but I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt and he had looked at me and this could have well been just a, like a glance in my direction, but what it signaled to me was that he was looking at me and there was something wrong and he looked a certain way. And I was at the point where I went and I had a full flashback and I started running at them and grabbing things off the shelves. And I said some of the most horrific things I'll never repeat because I was fully not there.
1: What is what did the yeah. mom saying at this point?
2: My mom just grabbed me and moved me. Um, the thing is, after everything that happened uh, to me during that operation, the week after I was sent on what we call our HLTA, which is our break that we get when we're on a deployment and my mom and I went to Dominican Republic. So she flew there and I met her for, I flew from Afghanistan to there to have a break. And I was incredibly unwell, incredibly, incredibly, it was like two weeks out from everything that just happened. She saw that right away. So she knew what she didn't know what she was going to get, but she knew that something was wrong with me even before I got home because she saw me in between the tour Mm. and she, they knew I was struggling really bad. They understood why I was coming home early. They understood. They knew they understood to the best of their ability. So she was empathetic. My mom was really understanding. Like I said, my grandfather came from Hungary and he left when the Nazis um, were pushed out by the Soviets. He had seen some stuff. He was a young kid in war she recognized some symptoms and she recognized my behaviors and and some stuff she probably saw in her dad. And it's not anything that I'm proud of, but it's a, it's a vulnerable moment in my life that I'll always remember because to me, it's really indicative of how sick and unwell I was. And it's a moment that I'll, I refuse to ever allow myself to feel act or look like again.
1: Now talk to me about therapy. You're, you're talking about where you were at that time. So now talk to me about recovery.
2: Yeah. So recovery is not linear with PTS or major depressive disorder, or pretty much any of the the lovely things that can come from byproducts of violence, but it is a journey and it is, it has its ups and it's downs. So I don't pretend to be, ah, huh, everything's wonderful every day. Cause I think that's irrational. And I think I, I, I think that it's okay for you to not be okay too. Mm -hmm. um, for me, therapy really, really started to work when I had the doctors I got in British Columbia. So when I moved from Ontario and I I moved out to British Columbia in 2011, I was given new doctors and I was given Dr. Marcus and Dr. Greg Passy and Dr. Greg Passy is a very hard nosed old school Canadian veteran that's served in Bosnia and Rwanda and was like in the military and is a hard ass. Mm. <laughs> and he, he saw a lot in me and he realized that it was going to take a different type of approach to work with someone like me who was as stubborn as I was and who was as frustrated and angry as I was. And I went to therapy and I still do uh, every week. Uh, so I'm in treatment every week. And once cannabis came through and I started getting off of the pharmaceutical medication, I started looking at other things like yoga and, and fitness as a, a different way to heal. So I took up mountain biking again. Um, I started running again. I started uh, started doing triathlons before COVID. I started getting on a road bike because road biking, I was like, hey, look, I'm really broken and sore from head to toe, from just like shoulder injuries to knees to broken feet running can't be sustainable all the time. So I said, Hey, I'm going to get into a road bike. I'm going to just start. I'm going to be a spandex dickhead. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get on the road and piss drivers off. I'm going to be that guy. And I, so I told my husband this and he's like, I, you know, if that's, that scares the hell out of me, I'd really rather you not go on the road, please. Um, But because I know it's something that'll work for you, I think like, let's, let's, let's get you into it. And so I started taking my physical fitness again, seriously, when I had got out of the military, I took a break. I started racing. Well, I started racing motocross more, but started racing competitively again. And I started to try to find things that could really help myself because what we do understand is that physical fitness is four times more effective than an antidepressant. It's a beautiful thing when you work out, when you make your body move and you feed it good things and you put good things in it, like water and nutrition and like, like vitamins, you'd be shocked what it can do for itself. It can heal itself. And so I started, I started like doing all these things and then started realizing I wanted to be competitive again. So that's when the triathlons came in. And I just started putting myself out there and started saying, yes, And with that came different types of healing with therapy and different types of suggestions. So when my doctor finally suggested art therapy, it felt ridiculous, but I could get with it enough because I respected the man that was telling me art therapy might be a good idea. And I did. And art therapy ended up growing into the company I have now. Um, So I've been really lucky with these doctors because they... At first handled me the way they needed to with kid gloves, but they tell me what's what when it's hard. They tell me where I need to work, when I need to work. And they tell me when I need to rest, when I need to rest. And I can respect and listen to people like that because they've given me leeway too to find myself. When I said I wanted to go experience ayahuasca, I wasn't asking. I was saying, hey, homie, see these meds? I need a break from them because I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this because I feel like I've plateaued and I need to find something else that's going to help me move forward. And he said, all right, because he knows better than to argue with me about things that I think are going to help me because I'm always only going to do what's best for me or what I think is going to be best for me at the time. I'm never going to go out and experiment with things that I haven't researched I haven't looked into, I haven't tried to educate myself on. So it went from cannabis to weaning off of pharmaceutical meds mixed with art therapy, traditional talk therapy, EMDR, yoga, meditation, Mm. breath work, physical fitness. And then we build and we build and we just do it every day. And so that's really where it started to happen with me. And then journaling, like, That's a thing, man. When you want to learn, you read, when you want to get it out, you write. So I've been implementing all of these things, like just making sure I have two liters of water every day. Just don't be soft. Put the water in your face. It's not that difficult. Just get it done. Go outside for two seconds. Ground. Just take your shoes off. Yeah. It's gross for some people who don't like, don't like dirt and bugs, but just go do it. Put your feet in the dirt or in some water and stand still without your phone. Do it. See what can happen. It's, it's magical, man. So I started really looking at healing differently. After ayahuasca, that was the last time I had a pharmaceutical medication. And I haven't been on any since.
1: Wow, wow, wow. You are giving all the gems at one time. I'm like, please just keep talking. Talk to me about ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is something that is, man, in the circles that I've, I've found myself in, people really believe in this drug. And ayahuasca is something that Like uh, it's something that has changed a lot of lives around me. Talk to me about this journey. Was it, what did you expect before you went in and what did you get out of it?
2: So Aya is not a drug plant-based medicines are not drugs. They are different types of healing modalities that can be used in conjunction with set and setting to help someone in their journey. So Zoloft is a drug. Um, what's another great one? Percocets are a drug. Ayahuasca is a healing modality. Psilocybin is a healing modality. It's a plant-based medicine. So anything that comes from the ground, I'll never call the drug. I used to call cannabis a drug. I used to call weed. I'd be like, oh my God, you're smoking drugs. And that's because that's the way I was brought up. And now my parents find it hilarious when they sit there and I just smoke a joint in front of them because I don't smoke I've never smoked but they're like we taught you to never but it's working okay we're <laughs> learning we're learning and you know so ayahuasca came into my life very in a very weird way in a way that I needed something so significant to make my body change to do an about face to look at the world differently and for whatever the reason the universe said hey I'm going to put this opportunity in front of you um and so I had no expectations. I was very fortunate to just even be having the conversation about an opportunity. But what I didn't realize is that it could be accessible to me. And it was made accessible because of Heroic Hearts Project. And they had the conversation with me at the beginning where they said, you know, look, are you on any SSRIs? Are you on it like antidepressants or antipsychotics? And you have to have these conversations because ayahuasca, psilocybin, other psychedelics, they're not safe for everyone. That's also okay to say. People who experience things like schizophrenia and bipolar or have mental health issues in their family should always consult someone before they go and experience and put themselves in a situation where they're taking a heavy duty duty dose of psychedelics. I mean, it can really harm someone. It can crack someone. It can... It can send somebody into a serotonin reuptake syndrome, which is just not good. And so I, they do their due diligence. They have these conversations with you to see if you're even a candidate to go with them, to go through the program. Fortunately, I was, and all I knew is I was going to this place. It was going to be for three days. I was going to have shaman there. And there was going to be a group of 10 of us. And these were all going to be veterans and or people who worked for three letter alphabets at some point. And these were all people that were looking to heal with the intent of healing. So when I got there, I was welcomed in to a group of guys who I call my pack. They are people who have seen me at my weakest and most vulnerable. And I've seen it at theirs. And we are people who stay in contact. We are people who talk regularly. They're family members. Because when you go through something like that, you're in it all together. Your energies in the room. Everything that everyone's going through, you can hear it. You can see it. You can smell it. You're in it. You're a part of something greater in that room. And there was a prep diet before. We had to only eat a certain type of healthy way, very clean eating. And then you met with the assistant shaman. You had the conversation about what is your intent? What are you looking to get from this? And somebody told me once, sometimes you just have to let go. Just have to let go. And and what is supposed to come to you will come to you. So I did not go in with an intent. The only thing I asked was for, was for her to stop my hurting. Make my heart stop hurting because I can't make it stop. And so we went into that first night and it was, I was so anxiety ridden that within 20 minutes of ingesting it, I threw up, which shouldn't happen yet. But I was so nervous. I was so anxious. I was so desperate for relief that my body just couldn't take it. It just couldn't. I put it in my mouth and then all of a sudden my mouth got watery. And then I sat there and then I looked across from me and one of the guys was like, do do it, do do it. And then I went and he's like, swallow it, swallow it. So like one more time. And then I swallowed it and I was like, I'm okay. Uh, And then it happened and I threw up and it was embarrassing, but nobody made me feel embarrassed, which was beautiful because you're in there. You're,
1: uh, you're, you're, You're yeah. Yeah.
2: You're your own journey, man. And so, you know, this could be, like I said, this could go hours and hours about this, but what I learned in that moment was I was safe and that I was now in the hands of something greater than myself. And I welcomed, needed, and and had to have that feeling Mm. because I grew up as a Catholic. I went to Catholic school. I'm what people call recovering Catholics. When you are forced to religion, you you, you don't feel a connection to it. When I was given the opportunity to go find something bigger than myself and I found it, I found faith again. So because of that, I was willing to give over whatever this was going to be, whatever she wanted me to see, whatever she needed me to experience. I was ready and I was willing.
1: And when you say she, you're speaking about ayahuasca.
2: Yeah, Mama Aya. She's ruthless. and it's beautiful. For the people
1: that don't understand what you're what you're talking about.
2: So like, does she think God's a woman? <laughs> like, no, we're not going there. Like, we're not going down that path. I'm but yeah, she is Mama Aya. And then she is, and she is um, she is she is this entity, this spirit, this guide, this plant, this whatever, this energy. She is something that you ingest. You drink aya. And then because of the, if I've been fortunate enough to have some of the best shamans sit in front of me Mm -hmm. and these two were husband and wife, and I've got to tell you, I have never experienced power in people and prayer. Like I experienced on my very first time going to sit with Aya, but not only did she give me healing, she gave me a chance to see people I needed to see again, conversations that needed to be had. Moments that needed to be lived, whether it was in this realm or the next, or this vibration, or the next, she gave me what I needed to go, okay, I can do this again. I can I can get up now, I can be strong enough for myself now, I can be strong enough for others now. I've opened the door, she says. Now it's your choice to walk through. And what do you do with that? Right. So since that moment. And that weekend, everything in my life is done a one hundred and eighty. Mm. It's hard to describe. It, it, it could take. I could go days about the changes that have happened in the moments that I experienced during those ceremonies. But it's hard for someone to understand if they've never experienced psychedelics. But what it gives you is a new, re- renewed faith in humanity, a connection, and an understanding that you're. We are so much bigger than ourselves and that we are, we are greater than we, than we ever could have imagined if we just got of our way.
1: I have so many questions about this, but I want to get into your business, the jewelry business, the jewelry company that you have called Brass and Unity and, and how art therapy led to what you're doing right now.
2: Yeah, so art therapy was a real silly thing. And now I, I thank my doctor every day for it. Um, yeah. I just want to know
1: what your first reaction was when they were like, yo, you have to try art therapy. What was your first reaction?
2: I can't say those words on this show. I respect <laughs> you too much. It was ridiculous. It just seemed astronomically out of touch. I was like, you've known me this long, and you think painting and coloring is going to be for me? And he's like, no, you don't understand. Try any art therapy. Make music. Do something. Just, just try it. So, my um,
1: <laughs> a bunch
2: of my friends. Yeah, I'm. I, yeah, I'm just. See, I bad. just uh, feel
1: like you and I will be really good friends.
2: <laughs> we're gonna be best friends for life. Now, oh, get on board. God, I
1: love it. I love it. Keep going.
2: Well, well, man, when you think about it, think about it for like two seconds. Like, if you could picture half of the stuff you've done since you've been in the NBA, if you could just sit there and go like backwards, when you were younger, you could not picture yourself being like, and it's okay to be like, I was a bougie bitch once in a while. It's fun, but it's because you can't picture it. But once it happens, you're like, how was I anything else, but this, Mm -hmm. how, so he, my husband got me a, um, a handheld pipe cutter from home Depot and a drill and a block of wood. And I called a bunch of my friends that I'd served with. And I was like, Hey, so I know you like to shoot guns still. You want to, you want to send me your brass casings or what? And they're like, yes, hundred percent. We have no idea what you want them for, but of course we will send them to you. Mm-hmm. So they sent me boxes of spent uh, brass casings from, you know, shooting at the range. And I just started getting beads and crystals. Somebody told me crystals could heal you. So I was like, I'll eat them. I'll just start this- off the strand. Like if Let's go.
1: I see all my friends have crystals all over their homes. I'm like, yes, whatever it is, I, I will take it. If it's if it's lucky, Dude. healing, whatever.
2: Yeah, I got them everywhere. It's out of control how many I have. It's out of control. So I started with beads. I started with like beads. So like black onyx and hematite and howlite. I heard that they could help ground you or take anxiety away or they could just help me heal. So I was like, I'm a fuck with beads. So I got beads and I started stringing them. And then I'd take a, a, like a a brass casing and I'd grab it with pliers. Then I would hand cut it off a piece of the casing off about this big here. Mm -hmm. And then I would hammer the edges smooth and I would chamfer them. I'd pop out the firing pin, I'd string it on and then I'd make a bracelet. And then, so some friends started seeing these and they were like, Hey, those are cool. And I was like, yeah, I'm cool. I actually didn't say that, but I say it now. And, um, they bought them from me and lucky enough, my husband is, uh, is a, was a professional athlete, and he started a company called Atlas Neck Brace. He has entrepreneurial built into him, hmm. and he goes, "I think, I think, you know, besides the fact that today you weren't suicidal and you didn't get up to brush your teeth, but you did get out of bed and you sat there and you built jewelry all day, which means you did something. Progress. So progress. So this is working. Okay, cool. How do we turn this into something? Because I would say." I can't, I'm not going to start a nonprofit. I don't know how to ask people for money. Frankly, I'm too aggressive. Nobody will want to give me money. If I'm like, Hey, listen, there's people dying because of suicide. Give me your money. They're going to be like, no, that's too harsh. So I knew that wasn't going to be my stick. So I said, okay, I can sell these and then donate the proceeds. And my husband's like, now you're cooking. So then that weekend, um, he built me a website and like one weekend, he called up his photographer Clayton and he came over and Clayton shot all the jewelry I'd built on the kitchen table. And we started it, a business called her wearables at the time. And I would go to like retail shops and I would just knock on the door and be like, Hey, what's up? And they'd be like, hey, what do you want? And I'd be like, want to carry my jewelry in your store? How does this work? And they're like, do you have a line sheet? And I'd be like, don't know what that is, but I'll find out. They're like, how much are these? You're like, it's a great question. They're like, what are they made out of? I was like, well, let me just tell you what they are for. We're going to donate the money to veteran and first responder organizations dealing with mental health and limb loss. How's that? They're like, okay, we like it. Come back to us with those answers, though. So I'd go back, build out a line list, had to learn about all business had to learn what margins were and buying times and sales times and fashion styles and when jewelry comes out. It's just the whole, had to do that. Listen, I played rugby. I wore sweatpants and a t-shirt most of my existence. I never even wore jewelry. Okay, Fez, not, not at all. So I had to learn about all of this. And then I started signing stores. And then the store was like, hey, there's a buying show you should go to in Las Vegas. And at this time, I was pregnant.
1: Oh, I went to Las Vegas okay.
2: and I snuck myself in and started talking to retailers as they walked by. Why and did then you have I to signed yourself in. Because I didn't have a ticket, because okay, I didn't know right. how this all worked.
1: I want to make sure people understand that part. Because
2: <laughs> I'm sketchy, Fezzi. What do you want?
1: Oh, you're hustling. So. Yeah, Yeah, well, I'm
2: that for sure. Yeah, yeah. You're not sketchy. You're just a hustler. That's a t-shirt. I'll make it for us. Um, so I went in and like these people be coming out of their out of the brand booths, and I would just be like stopping them and being like, Hey, I see you're buying jewelry for your store. Can I tell you about my brand? And they're like, Where's your booth? I'm like, I don't have one. Here's a line list and a sample. And then I signed 10 accounts. So that night. Yeah, there, there's a reason why this is relevant. I promise. So that night, um, a friend of mine went to the Carbone in the Aria, and they said they didn't have a table, but they could squeeze us in the spot. We had to be out a certain amount of time. I was like, cool, whatever. So we're sitting there, and then these two guys sit down beside me. And at the time, I had probably like four or five of these bullet bracelets on, the warrior bracelets or the buddy pack. And the, this guy leaned over and it was like, hey, is that what's what's on your wrist? And I was like, you're wearing a Hillary Clinton sticker. You might not like where this goes next. <laughs> and he, I was like, this is this, this is who I am. This, you know, I'm Kelsey. I'm a veteran. I do this. I'm trying to help that. And he was like, that's really cool. Can we meet tomorrow? I was like, absolutely. And then we had a great dinner with them. And it was fantastic. But I couldn't shake the fact that I knew this face. And we go back and I'm Googling his name and I go, Oh, that's why I know him. He is married to Jesse Tyler Ferguson for modern family. I've seen him like on like the red carpet being amazing. Like it's fine. in like the greatest suits of all time. So I was like, holy crap. I didn't even realize who I was talking to, which I never do. And he goes the next day. He's like, Hey, like, I think I might have some people that'd be interested in working with your brand. And I said, okay. He introduced me, uh, like a month later to Beth bears from the neighborhood and two broke girls. She had an organization that she was working on um, for equine therapy for sexual assault victims. And we ended up doing a partnership with her where we built a bracelet and a necklace for Beth Bears. And next thing you know, we got a call to go on Ellen's 12 Days of Giveaway. And so we did all of this and we started having them on Whitney Cummings and Kat Dennings and all of these people. And I was still building it on the kitchen table and making it everything at the house. And then my mom, being the way my mother is, she was a truck driver for Kevin Hart's What Now Tour. And she would harass Kevin and say, you need to meet my daughter. Like, you, you, need, you should meet her. You should just meet her. Like, at the end of every show. Like, she had no business talking to this dude. She was driving from point A to point B to deliver stage. <laughs> she had no point. But Kath being Kath was like, yo, you need to talk to my daughter. He's like, cool. Yeah, sure. No, you need to talk to my daughter. So when we got to Vancouver, they were here. She's like, I got you tickets. You need to come bring some gifts. We're going to try to get you to see Kevin. So she did. Next thing you know, at the end of the show. Yeah. Mom, what's up? So she, yeah, yeah. So then what happened was she got his bodyguard to talk with me, who was like a 27 year NYPD officer, real dope dude, just super nice. And he's like, I'm gonna make sure Kevin talks to you. And I was like, sure. So I'm sitting there finishing the show. He's one of my favorite comedians. I'm like, ha, 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 ha. I'm taller than him, ha, ha, and then I get the wave back. I get the awkward, like, you, come here, and I was like, ha, so I, I go backstage, and I'm so bold and uncomfortable. I wrote one of his jokes in a card, because I wanted to see if he'd laugh at it, because I'm that, I'm one of those fans, and um, so we're at backstage, and it's just my husband and my mom. And Kevin's standing back there, just finishing talking to someone. We're like the, you know, we're like the Make a Wish kids standing there, and I'm just like, oh my god, Kevin's coming, and he comes over, and I'm in heels, about maybe this tall, and we're eye to eye, and I'm like, I'm five foot, so Kevin, oh, you're five you know, foot,
1: okay, oh yeah, All right. yeah.
2: There's, listen, that's it. <laughs> I stand up. I'm basically sitting. Um, and so he's like, hey, what's up? Chick It's nice to meet you. I told him what I did. That opens the present. I said, I wrote a joke in there for you. And he's like, do you want me to fake laugh if I think it's funny? Or do you want me to like laugh, laugh? And I don't know if you ever saw his show, Real Husbands of Hollywood. Did you ever see that show?
1: Yeah. That's where he started calling people Mitch's. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, <was> joke.
2: <laughs> I said, what's up, Mitch? And he was like, huh? That's good. And I was like, see, it's not not bad. I'm not a funny person. But yeah, what's up, Mitch? I thought that was the greatest thing ever, by the way. Um, still do. And anyway, he goes to me. Uh ah, yeah, you gotta put it out there, man. When you get, hey, you gotta take your shot. You, you have to take, take the it.
1: shot. Come on, man. Michael Jordan. That's not that the quote with Michael Jordan, but yeah, keep going.
2: Yeah, no, I feel see. I'm resonating. We're getting here. We're getting around the basketball terminology. Um, so he goes, look, he goes, I, he's like, do you want to take a picture? I said, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's like, okay with you. That's fine. And he says, so we take the picture and he goes, can I give you a piece of advice? You calling it her wearables, but you want guys to wear it too. And I was like, oh, God damn it. He's like, listen, if you want dudes to wear this, you should, you should think about changing the name. And I was like, yeah, oh, guys. So Right. And this was before Kevin was known as like the business entrepreneur, brilliant man. Like he, it's a dream for me to have him on the show just so I can tell him the story. Cause it changed my life. He, I'm driving home, going over the Alex, not Alex Fisher bridge. Was it? And I see on Instagram, on Twitter, and I don't even do Twitter. I don't even understand it. He goes, tweets it out to like 26 million people. That was before he was like, his was like, boom, it was about 26 million people. And I went, ha, 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 ha. and, um, It just went crazy after that. And we, we started having different conversations with people, but next thing, you know, less than a year later, we changed the name from um, her wearables to brass and unity. We incorporated under brass and unity in 2016. And we went from there as, as we have been brass and unity ever since. And uh, yeah. So shout out to Kevin. Thanks for that. I think he's going to like bill me now. If he ever hears this, like, Hey, I changed your life. What are you talking about? Um, I'm
1: gonna let him know. So he can get his check.
2: Oh, he, well, Hey, he's more than welcome to give me a call and I'll give him that check. He's been, it's weird when you, like I said, you look back at those moments and you plot them and you go, the lady on the bus, you know, the, the, the Dr. Passy saying art therapy, the ayahuasca, Kevin Hart. Like there's been moments that I'm always going to be grateful for in my existence that led me to where I'm able to do what I do now, which is, We took the company from the kitchen table, you know, to over half a million dollars in donations, major organization partnerships. And now we're not, we're not just a jewelry company. We, I mean, we've been nominated for a CAFA, which is Canadian art and fashion and philanthropic work. So under fashion with impact, what I try to do is shake people a little bit and give them the real reality of what's going on in mental health with society, with veterans, with first responders. And I go, look, we have over 20 su- 22 suicides a day. That's just like the median number. It goes qu- way higher than that. The WHO states ninety in, in uh, 2019, one in every hundred death is death by suicide. Yeah. We are losing more veterans. We've lost four times more veterans to suicide than we did during the act of war. So I'm now screaming at the top of my lungs and have been for six years that we are losing people every day to mental health. We are losing people. And we need to change the conversation. Mental health is not the trendy thing, it's the thing that needs to be talked about with a serious intent. So what we do is I do this. I go, hi, I'm all, I'm Kelsey Sharon. Look at me. Look at me. Let's talk about why this little bullet bracelet saves someone's life. Pay attention. You know why you should pay attention? Because this is the vehicle that puts the money in the hands of the organizations that are doing the hard work, that are doing the real work. I'm just the voice box. I'm just the tool. I'm just the way to help. I'm a way for people to feel part of a community. I'm a touch piece. I'm something that they wear when they're having a hard time. I'm a piece that they keep on so they feel like they can be a part of the B&U Army. I am something that people can call and say, I need resources and help for my husband or my wife because she's not doing well because of whatever. We're not just for vets and first responders we are for humanity. We are for everyone. We are a community of people that doesn't want to lose another person to suicide. We just don't. So that's where I went from kitchen table to, to uh, now I'm the bullet jewelry girl, which you know what? I don't care as long as you remember the name.
1: I love it. I love everything about this. I love the fact that you're using your voice for good. I like that you're using your struggles and your story. This is the point of this podcast is amplifying voices like yours. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Also, with your company, um, what is it like, what are you trying to accomplish? What what do you see yourself in five years for your company? You guys have done $500,000 in donations. That's big. Mm -hmm. Where do you want to go from here?
2: You know, for me, the goal has always been uh, to donate a million dollars before I pay myself. So I'm, I'm not there yet. So I don't, you know, the goal is I want, <laughs> it sounds really silly and it sounds superficial, but I, I believe, I believe deeply, if you speak to the world, the world will listen. And so I've, I've been stating it's very simple I want my friends to stop killing themselves. I want not another person who's a vet or first responder to feel alone. I don't want them to think that they can't have the hard conversation. I don't want them to feel like they're marginalized. I don't want anybody to grab a gun, a rope, a Glock, a pill. I don't want you reaching for anything, but of try not to swear but a bullet bracelet that you put on your wrist so that you feel like you are supported, you are loved, you are wanted, you matter. That's what I want. That's all I want. I want them to take the silly little thing. And if bullets aren't your thing, then go buy the fancy stuff. I want you to take this. I want you to put it on your wrist. I want you to talk to every single human that you know and say, do you know why I wear this? do you you get why? And they'll go, no, I don't understand why you wear a bullet around your wrist. It seems really lame. And I don't like violence. And then you'll go, nah, it's a recycled piece of metal that makes people feel like they don't have to take their own life. That's what I want. I want one of these on every single human. I want to be the live strong for the mind, not just for the body minus the doping doping in a cool way, in a right way, in a healthy way, in a way that actually makes change. But that's what I want. I want serious reform in mental health. I want it to stop being a trend. I want it to stop being cool. I want it to be a thing. That matters to people every damn day, not when they feel like it, not in the month of May, not around Remembrance Day, not around Memorial Day. I want them to care every day about every single person that's ever put on a uniform, who's ever Mm. gone through something, who's ever been through a trauma. I want them to feel loved, supported, and like they matter so that they stay on this planet Mm. for the rest of us to get to experience their light. That's what I want for me. And then I want my podcast to blow up. And I want to talk to people like you. And I want people to uplift one another because there's no competition. There is only welcome to community and lifting up people because God damn, does our world ever need more light right now more than we need anything else?
1: Wow. That's what I want. I pray you get everything that you want. And I'm happy that I can be a tool in some way to help you on that journey. Now tell us where we can find you because your voice is very needed. And as we're winding down now, I want to know where we can find you on Instagram. I want to know what your podcast is called, what it's about, and what is it like? What's your favorite thing about being a podcast host as well?
2: Uh, so you can find, I mean, we're everything right across the board. We're brassandunity.com. We're uh, at Brass and Unity. Uh, my personal page is at Kelsey underscore Sharon. Um, our TikToks, uh, brassunity. it's Kelsey Sharon. It's, it's pretty much all the same. Um, I think, you know, for me, one of the greatest gifts I was given when giving the opportunity to, to have this brand was I didn't just have to be the person that made jewelry out of bullets. I could use what happened to me, what I did, I could use the stories and love and support around me to amplify people the way you are. So it's the Brass and Unity podcast. We talk about mental health in a real raw, as you can tell, unconventional way where we just have conversations just like this. And we talk to people. I could be having a conversation with them, what they think is going to be a perfectly lovely, light, fluffy conversation, which most people actually think it's about to be. And then they realize that by the end of it, they're either weeping it or going, Oh my God, I didn't realize that about myself because I just want to talk. I want to do what we used to do. I don't know if you remember this thing where we would sit down with like a coffee or like whatever. And we'd be like, Hey man, how you doing? And you'd be like, I'm I, I don't, I don't know if the younger generation's forgotten, but in case you forgot, it's also D-Day today. So maybe turn your brains on. So I think the, the podcast was beautiful. It came at a great time for me. Um, and it's an honor. It's a dream to sit and do this and talk with people to share experiences with. We have every type of person from, you know Marcus Cone seal team sex door breacher to Travis Pastrana to your lovely NBA tall self soon we've got people who have done real things in their lives things that are maybe outside the box things that are a little different but they have found a way to show their their true self their vulnerable self i give them a space to be open to get deep to not feel judged to feel loved and to feel like they're going to make a difference in others' lives. And I, and I try to amplify stories like that. And that's, and that's really all it is. We're just trying to help people and we're trying to make people feel less alone. And, and that's why I'm so grateful. I get to do the show, man.
1: That's beautiful. Okay. So this show gets to touch a lot of people. And so we're going to take a break for a second because there's a segment of it where I get to read a mail from somebody anonymously and the impact that this show has on them. So this is an anonymous beast mail. It says, thank you for that episode. There is so much I relate to the passing of a loved one, making the choice to take my career in a different direction after feeling defeated and embracing almost every fear I've had, including leaving a profound relationship and learning to be happy alone in peace and quiet. You know, this is what, like, these are some of the things that people deal with. And thank you so much anonymous person for leaving this message. And these are the things that people deal with that people don't talk about. But having a podcast, having a space like this where we can share, where we can talk. Thank you for being one of the voices, of people that can stand up and say, yo, this is what I'm going through. And I'm going to use my story and my recovery to help other people.
2: Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's an honor. It's a pleasure to just get to know you and and get to have a platform like this. I know so many people are struggling right now uh, with just life in general and handling it. And I hear you. I feel you. I've got you. You're not the only one. Instagram is a highlight reel, you know, people have real problems, but I can tell you it'll pass. Those moments will pass. You will wake up another day. You will be given the opportunity. And if you can just try to be 1% better than you were the day before, you're doing it all right. You're doing all right, man. You're doing all right. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. I really appreciate it.
1: All right. So my... Okay, actually, before I get to my favorite question and my last question, you got to talk about my friends, Neil and Revae McDonough. Yeah, You guys are working on a project. Can you talk about it yet or no? Yet. I can. Yes. I mean, yes.
2: they've been talking about it. It's weird. I don't know. I'm real uncomfortable about it. Um, <laughs> can you tell? So this the, is how... You know, uh,
1: Amazing your life yeah. is you guys are working on something that's gonna be based on yeah. your life and
2: yeah. Maybe- so I um it was weird again. One of those weird situations in my life. I think you're gonna to start to connect the dots in that. I have these weird moments. I a a buddy of mine, um, who's a firefighter uh with fire, his, his company's called Fire Career Prep. He said, Hey, Kelsey, like I'm a firefighter down at uh, you know, this fire department in Port Roberts. I'd love to do this 24 hour rowathon. Would you guys sponsor it and be part of it? So we went down there and did it. And it was uh, for your listeners. It's on rowing machines for 24 hours on Remembrance Day and Veterans Day. And we go for 24 hours. And so what I didn't know was Neil and Ruvay were friends with the chief of police. And they said, hey, we would love to come participate. And so Neil showed up late and I call him out for it. And he'll never (laughs) live it down. And he rode with us at the 11 o'clock hour for an hour. And it was impressive. And they said to me, Kelsey, if you're ever working on anything or ever, you know, just stay in touch. And so I stayed in touch and I got an opportunity to write a book uh, about my life, a memoir up until now and where I'm at. And um, we're working on a publishing deal with that right now. But Neil and Rouvet said to me the week after I came back from ayahuasca, they FaceTimed me and said, hey, so we want to turn uh, your book into a limited TV series. So would would that be cool? And I was like, "Sure, Sure. Actually, I weeped uh, aggressively on Zoom. If I'm being completely honest, I just cried my eyes out because I couldn't believe what I was hearing because I am no one special. I am a normal person. I just happened, dude, if you knew the amount of friends with stories like mine and that mine is like, mine is like kindergarten level shit, you know? And so I took me a long time to wrap my head around the fact that I was worth talking about. Mm. right? And that comes with growth and learning. It's okay to talk sometimes about things you're doing. And so they told me they wanted to do that. And ever since then, we've been working, we've been working on getting this going and talking to different companies and different people. And so, yeah, Neil, Neil McDonough and Ruve McDonough are going to produce my TV series, uh, whatever that ends up being and whenever it ends up coming out. And we're working on that now. And they took me out to dinner the other night. Um, and, uh, I had my first taste of what paparazzi was like. They warned me and they're like, I was like, no, it's cool. I just like had behind you. Like it's cool. And they're like, no, 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 you're not getting it. Like get out of the vehicle, stand beside us and say your name. And I was like, yes, ma'am. And if you know, Ruvay, you do what Ruvay says. Absolutely. And so I, Yeah, exactly. So I get out of the car and they're like, Neil, and they're talking to Neil. And they're like, what are you celebrating? What are you doing? And they're just like, brass in unity. We're making a movie. This is Kelsey Sharon. And I think, I don't actually know if I never want to see those photos. (laughs) It's like the awkward, like your hands just come up your face and go, what do I do with them? Do I, do they just
1: put, just put them in your what, pockets? What, what, put them what, in your pockets. What do I do with
2: my hands? What I, what I do with my hands and get real uncomfortable real quickly. It's like I don't know how. It's like start petting my hair. It's like real weird. So they we went out. We had uh, we had dinner and we we met with another producer that night. And yeah, so we're working. We're working away on these projects. We're working away with the book and. You know, if I'm if I'm fortunate enough to get through all of the the headaches of of what it takes to get something done, um, maybe one day I'll be able to come on and and, and say, hey, this is the release date. But uh, right now, that's what we're doing. We're working on a project together and and uh, trying to help people. And then we plan on donating a, a large portion of the proceeds as well to vet and first responder organizations from the book and from the series and pretty much anything that we do. We donate twenty percent of the net proceeds from the company from the show from anything that my hands touch, it, it goes. So yeah, that's why Neil and Ruvay are amazing. They saw something when in me when I couldn't see anything in myself, when I didn't think I was worth anything. Um, so I'm uh, forever grateful, indebted. It's It's been a wild journey and I know it's just starting. So I'm just uh, trying to hang on for dear life and just enjoy every moment of it.
1: Journey is just starting. And to counter something that you said earlier, because it's something that actually I got some really good advice on earlier in my journey. Uh, well, a few years ago. Someone said to me, Because like even now, like I'm on this, I'm on this new journey, I'm doing TV. I'm a basketball player, but I'm now on TV big on deal. No, no, it's it's not even that. It's okay it's to idea. say that. I understand, but that's not where I'm going. What I'm saying is, like, As I'm starting a new journey, you're starting over and you're sitting in your mind, you're thinking, I'm doing this thing. There's other people who are much greater at at this thing than I am. Like what makes me so special to do this thing? right. It's a question that comes up for all of us. Somebody told me this once, and I think it's applicable here as well. They said, your voice is unique to you. Don't try to make it somebody else's voice. Don't try to compare it to somebody else's story. Because your story speaks to somebody else out there that can only hear it unless it was the way you said it, the way you said it in your own voice. And when they said that to me, it was just this idea that your story is going to speak to somebody specific. The person Mm -hmm. who's hardcore and who has all these other things, like what you said earlier, their story might not relate to them. And so Mm -hmm. you are the person who is going to be able, and kind of like the mantra for this podcast, God gave you your mountain to show others it can be moved. So you can show others it can be moved. You are the person that gets to show other people, you know? And so when you tell your story, that will be someone else's survival guide. And so I just want you to continue to look at it that way, the same way I'm trying to look at my story because why does anybody do anything, right? You do it because you get to be the person that speaks to somebody. So um, thank you to Neil and Ruvay McDonough. If you missed this episode, I think, I can't remember. It's like 40s, episode 40 something, Neil McDonough. Dope actor, amazing guy. Um, I end every episode with the same question. And it's my favorite question. If you could speak to your younger self and talk to her about your journey so far, what would you say to her?
2: It's a good question. Trust the process. It's not going to be easy, but uh, nothing worth doing ever is. So just trust the process.
1: Kelsey Brass, rebuilding are building the beast. You are a beast, girl. Thank you, homie. (laughs) Thank you so much. This
0: is awesome. I appreciate you. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the story. Don't forget to share it with someone who you think would appreciate the message. And also, rate on whatever platform you're listening on. Please rate and like and share and comment so other people can enjoy the message as well. Thank you for listening. And until next time.